Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Good morning, Hope Brooklyn. We are so excited to be joining you live in your living rooms, in your car. Maybe you're like driving and you're listening at the same time. And good evening to those who are with us in person, joining us for the recording here tonight. I'm so thankful for the magic of technology where we can be sharing God all over and every part of New York City together and yet separate. And so I'm excited that this Sunday morning and this Thursday evening, we get to gather to hear from the Word of God. You know, we've been in the middle of a series entitled Detox, and when we were kind of coming up with the idea for the series, the, the idea was that in 2020 was survival season, right? And in survival mode, you do a lot to survive. You do what you got to do to kind of make it through, but Some of us along the way, in in our attempts to survive, we picked up some bad habits or mindsets, and we realize as we go into 2021, we need to detox. We need to cleanse. We need to get rid of the things that we picked up in 2020 that may not have been beneficial for us and will affect us in the long run. And I have been tasked today to preach about anxiety. Now, I have to tell you, every preacher trembles at their post when they're assigned to talk about anxiety. And here's why. The preacher is keenly aware that he is neither a psychologist nor a therapist, that he does not have the letters after his name to qualify him to talk about mental health in any deep or profound way. And yet, he also has the conviction that scripture speaks to every area of life. And the delineation between body and soul, between our minds and our spirit, is not a delineation made in scripture, but is in fact a modern thing that that we handle our minds in the therapist's office, but yet when we come to church, we don't hear about it. And I I truly believe, despite not having the qualifications of a professional counselor, I do believe that preachers and pastors are called to care for the soul. And so while our minds are left in the hands of the professionals, God has entrusted preachers and pastors to care for your souls. And so while today I may not give you three steps towards a more sound mind in the psychological sense, I I can't write you a prescription. What I can do is speak to your soul. And if we believe anything about what Christianity and our faith says about humanity, it's that our souls and our minds, our emotions, and the deepest recesses of who we are interconnected and affect one another. And so while anxiety might show up in our mental health and in our minds, it still has an effect and has its roots in what happens in our souls. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, we are ensouled bodies and embodied souls. We can't separate the two. And so to try to separate our mental health from our spiritual health is a fool's errand. And so, disclaimer, Today, I'm not going to preach to you from a mental health standpoint. I encourage you to go see counselors about recurring anxiety, to go see a therapist about any mental health crises you might be facing. But I do also believe that the Spirit can speak to your soul. 
and that healing can begin and start when we begin to address the root issues at the depths of our being that manifest themselves in our minds and our behaviors. And so with that said, what is anxiety from a spiritual theological perspective? What is anxiety? See, I don't think we need a textbook definition. I don't think a clinical definition is going to help us here because I think many of us no anxiety when we see it. Like we can identify the common cold and its symptoms, I, I think we, we can give a textbook answer for what anxiety is, but I don't think that's going to help us today. I think we need to turn to someone else. I think we need to turn to a poet to describe the gnawing feeling in the back of our minds when anxiety begins to work on our soul. What is anxiety? George MacDonald, the great preacher and storyteller says this. He says, anxiety is the care that is filling your mind at this moment. Or but waiting till you lay the book aside or till you turn off this YouTube stream to leap upon you. That need which is no need. It is a demon sucking at the spring of your life. For George MacDonald, anxiety is that care that right now, even as you're listening to this message, is preventing you from really hearing because it's clawing at the back of your mind. It's a demon. It's something dark that sits at the recesses in the, in the well of your soul and drains life from you. And while that might not be a clinical definition of anxiety, I think it describes it aptly. It's that thing that prevents us from feeling peace. It's that thing that prevents us from being still. It's that thing that when we try to sit and have a moment with God, we can't because it's there, like a shadow lingering, and we can't escape it. It's funny, in one of George MacDonald's um, fairy tales he wrote called Fantasies, there's this image of this young man who's he's in the world of the fae, he's in the world of the fairy, and all of a sudden he has a shadow attached to him. And the longer he dwells with the shadow, the deeper depression he falls into. Anxiety is like that shadow, constantly clinging, constantly grabbing at our attention, robbing us of peace. It is the demon sucking at the spring of our life. Anxiety is present in all of us in varying degrees. For some of us, it's a crippling thing. It's, it's why you can't sleep. It's why it's difficult for you to be in community. It's why you can't turn over at night and find rest. For some of us, it's more subtle. It, it, it's, it's less noticeable, but still as deadly. It's there, present robbing us of our life. The question is, where and how did this thing take root? How did we go from being people who maybe once had peace or, or what seemed like peace to be people who are constantly gnawing at our fingernails and tossing and turning? How did we become those people? Well, to understand how anxiety develops in the soul, and then to understand how we can remedy it and combat it, well, we must approach the scriptures. And tonight and to this morning, we are going to dive into Matthew 6, right in the middle of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. 
And so if you have your Bibles, if you're following along, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, starting there. It says this, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to the span of your life? And why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not clothed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? You of little faith. Therefore do not worry, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But strive first for the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. The audience listening to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount had every right to be anxious. You see, these were people predominantly poor, predominantly on the bottom of the social strata of the day, and they're not only dealing with their own private struggle, but they're also dealing with being an overtaxed population occupied by an oppressive Roman regime. These people had every right to be anxious because every day was a struggle. We have to understand in the ancient world, food and clothing and water and drink were not guaranteed. We have a luxury being in the 21st century. We have a luxury being in a first world country that is privileged beyond measure, where many of us do not have to worry about basic necessities. And yet in the ancient world, and sadly, even present in our own country and around the world, people have to worry and think, will I get another meal later today? This is the population Jesus is speaking to. This is a population that if they got stopped by the wrong Roman guard, they may not have made it home. This is a people who had every right to be anxious, every right to be obsessed about what they were gonna wear, what they were going to eat, and what they were going to drink. And yet Jesus has the audacity to tell these people not to worry. He has the audacity to tell these people that do not put too much care on what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, and what you're going to wear, when he very well knew that these were the primary concerns of their lives. But I think Jesus isn't being insensitive here. He's not being blunt for the sake of being blunt. He, he's not minimizing the problems faced by his audience. I, I think he's inviting these people with very real problems and very real reasons to be anxious. He's inviting them into a new perspective. 
He's inviting them into a radically new way to see their lives so that their lives might not just be what they're gonna eat, what they're gonna drink, and what they're gonna wear. I think Jesus is insinuating there's more to life than the problems of tomorrow. You see, right before this exhortation to not worry, Jesus gives another famous saying. He says, you cannot serve both God and money. You'll either hate one or love the other. And then he goes, therefore, in other words, based on what I just said, therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. In other words, I think what Jesus is trying to get at is that when he's talking about money, he's talking about serving God or money, he's talking about two different outlooks, two different ways of seeing the world, and one will produce anxiety, and one will produce peace, and I think he's offering a way out. See, when it comes to serving God or serving money, I, I think we understand that serving God means to put our trust and care that God is a good and gracious God and a loving Father, but what does it, Jesus mean by serving money, and, and what does it have to do with anxiety? Well, if we're honest, money is just about control. Money is a means by which we pay and barter for control of our lives. If I have enough of it, I don't have to worry about what I'm gonna drink. If I have enough of it, I don't have to worry about what I have to eat. If I have enough of it, I don't have to worry about what I'm going to wear. Money is a means of control. And so we believe that if we have enough of it, we believe if we have enough control, we can dictate the outcomes of our lives. See, the root of anxiety stems from a desire to control our lives rather than trust our lives to the one who knows both the beginning and the end. See, we can either choose to serve God, completely entrust ourselves to his care, or we can try to be in control. We can try to be God. See, the temptation in the garden was an invitation to be like God, to supplant God as the rulers and reigners of creation. See, anxiety stems from this innate desire to have control over our lives. We want to take control so that we might determine the outcomes of our lives. And by doing so, we create anxiety. Why? Because the control we think we have is no control at all. You know, I, I think we can all look at last year and realize how little control we have over our lives. People had plans in 2020, and those plans went out the window when COVID hit. George Floyd had plans for his life and sadly that choice was robbed from him. Families had plans to see their loved ones grow old until they had to FaceTime them from a hospital bed and say goodbye if they were that lucky. We don't have that much control and we delude ourselves into thinking we have control. We delude ourselves into thinking we can rule and reign and somehow control the outcomes of our lives, but when tragedy hits, we realize we don't have that much control, and one, then we wonder and think why we're anxious. It's because deep down inside, for all the control we think we have, we know deep down inside we have none. 
that ultimately we control very little of what's around us. That we are at one another's mercy. That we are at the mercy of things far greater and more powerful than ourselves. We are like children pretending to control the tide, ignorant of the moon. We are men and women thinking that we have it all under control and it is all an illusion and that because we know deep down inside it is an illusion, we are anxious. Because while we think we can secure a good outcome for our lives, we know we actually can't. And that is the reason why we're anxious. That is the root of anxiety. The root of anxiety comes from our desire to control our lives rather than Give over control of our lives to one who knows the beginning and the end. George MacDonald says this. He says, the next hour, the next moment is as much beyond our grasp and as much in God's care as that of a hundred years away. Care for the next minute is just as foolish as care for the morrow or for the day in the next thousand years. And neither can we do anything. And both God is doing everything. He goes on to say, tomorrow makes today's whole head sick, its whole heart faint. When we should be still sleeping or dreaming, we are fretting about an hour that lies a half a sun's journey away. We have to admit that the future, that our lives are outside of our control. And even if there's, we can control a little bit, it's still not enough to dictate the future. See, we believe the lie that we can influence the future when really all we have is the present. But we believe it. We, we actually believe, I, I, I can, if I just do this thing today, if, if I could just, if I have all my ducks in a row, maybe, just maybe, I, I, I can control my five-year plan. It's going to work out, I promise. It's going to work out just the way I see it, but that causes anxiety within us because deep down we know it's actually no control at all because it's foolish to try to think we can control a minute from now. It's just as foolish as thinking we can try to control 10 years from now. Ultimately, we are not the creator. We're creatures. And creatures are great at, are great at being creatures of the present because our domain isn't the future. We're not made for the future. We're not made to control the future. We're made to embrace and live well in the present. But if we try to extend our hands to control what happens in the future, we fail miserably. And all we do is cause anxiety in our souls because we can't control what happens next. That control is in someone else's hand. The old song, you know, he's got the whole world in his hand. You know, for an infinitely powerful God, that's an easy weight. But for an infinitely small human, it's backbreaking to try to carry the whole world, to try to control every bit. All we do is worry and are anxious because we're trying to control things bigger than ourselves. If control is the root of anxiety, then the solution to an anxious soul and a worrisome heart is to give up control, to be free from fear. Here, Jesus turns to some unlikely teachers. Jesus says, look at the birds. Look at the lilies of the field. You, you know, 
you know what you can learn from them? Is that they're creatures of the present. See, birds and flowers don't worry about the future. There's a humility in them because they know all they have is today. And Jesus is saying to us, his disciples, he's saying, hey, listen, if you want to learn how not to be anxious, you need to take a cue from nature. Nature lives moment by moment. Nature only has today. They only have between from sunup and sundown. And even then, they can't really control what's going to happen next to them. So why don't you learn something from them? Because maybe if we learn to embrace the present, we wouldn't be so caught up in the future. See, both birds and the flowers live in what I call the holy present. See, all we have is today. And if all we have is today, then each day I have an opportunity to give myself to the one who's in, who is eternally present to me. Who I have an opportunity to cast my cares at his feet. I have an opportunity to entrust myself to his care. See, birds and flowers are really good at living in the holy present because their very existence is in the hands of God. We too have to learn how to give up control and be totally and completely present to God, giving him all our cares, all our worries, and say, God, I can do nothing about my past. I cannot control the future. All I have is this present moment now. Would you take care of me now? I cede control of my past to you. I cede control of the future to you. And all I want is your presence here and now, and that's more than enough because I know you take care of me. So I'm going to embrace this present moment knowing that you will indeed care for my, the sins of my past and the worries of my future. We must learn to embrace the here and now and commit all our cares to God. Only then will we be free of anxieties and worries. We have to learn how to embrace the holy present. You can't do anything about tomorrow. Tomorrow has its own problems, but you can embrace the present, and you can say in this moment, God, since I can do nothing about the past, I can do nothing about the future, all I have is you today. Would you take care of me today, and would you take care of tomorrow? Those things are outside of my control. If control causes anxiety, if, if attempting to control the future in our lives causes anxiety, well, then we have to give up control. We have to make ourselves like the birds and the flowers and say, God, I'm going to just be present to you and not care about what happens tomorrow. Now, that doesn't mean we live unwisely. It doesn't mean you don't invest in your 401k. It doesn't mean you don't make plans for your kids and set up a college fund. It just means that ultimately you know that those things need to be held with open hands. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. That is the prayer of Job who finally understood that he could do nothing about what was happening to him, but he could embrace the God who knew exactly what was going on. We need not search for the holy present, though. It's not something we have to strive after and achieve. It's something we simply have to make ourselves available to. 
as Christians, we are indwelled by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And all we have to do is make ourselves more open and available to the Holy Spirit to experience that peace that surpasses all understanding. But it always, doesn't always come easy. And that's why the Christian walk is a partnership between the powerful working of the Spirit and our own participation in what he's doing. In other words, living in the holy present, living with our lives fully entrusted to God is something that the Spirit does within us, but also something we have to learn to do. And so I want to give you guys three habits that we can cultivate the holy present, give up our attempt at controlling our lives so that we might be free of anxiety. Number one is stillness. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. We live in an age where we are always in motion. Even when we are seated, our minds are a million miles away and we are inundated with news and media from around the world and across the globe. Our capacity to be still, our capacity for the briefest moments to, to just say, I'm not going to do anything, I'm simply going to be, is a difficult task in our modern day and age. When was the last time you didn't do anything but simply existed, simply sat and breathed and said, I'm going to put down my work, I'm gonna put down my cares and just be still and know that even when I am still and doing nothing, God is actively at work in the world. See, that's what being still does for us. By being still, by, by taking a minute a day, a few minutes every hour just to be still and cease from our work. By being still, we learn something about God. Notice the, the psalm says, be st it's God speaking through the psalm saying, be still and know. In other words, stillness breathes new knowledge in us. And that knowledge is that even when it looks like I'm doing nothing and I have no control of anything, God's actually in control of everything. Number two is prayer. Philippians 4 verse 5 to 7, Paul speaking to the church in Philippi. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. St. Julian of Norwich says, pray even when you feel nothing. See nothing, for when you are dry, empty, sick, or weak, at such a time is your prayer most pleasing to God, even though you may find little joy in it. This is true of all believing prayer. The words of St. Julian of Norwich, who, she was a woman who knew isolation. She lived isolated for most of her adult life. This idea that at my worst moments, at my most anxious moments, is rather than trying to grab control and grab the reins, is the moment where I need to drop to my knees and bring everything to God. Often we think we have to have our ducks in a row before we can come to God in prayer. We have to have like our spiritual lives figured out. We, we have to be in a spiritual headspace to come to God in prayer. But no, 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 it's actually the opposite. It's actually when you're dry. It's actually when you're empty. It's actually when you're sick and you're weak and you're full of anxiety and weary and those emotions and that demon begins sucking at the spring of your soul that that's when you need to drop to your knees and pray. Because in prayer, 
We say, God, I can no longer handle this thing. I'm giving it completely to you. Would we learn to pray? Because I think if we learn to pray, if we make prayer not just something we do to pass the time, not just something we do to check off a box, not just something we do in the context of a Sunday, but we learn to pray at our worst moments, it will serve as a guard, a, a sword and a shield against anxiety when it strikes. And last but not least, Sabbath. And you might be asking, what's the difference between stillness and Sabbath? Well, stillness is something we can do at any moment. We can just take a moment to be still. But Sabbath is a reorientation of our time. See, Sabbath is the practice of taking a moment, a significant space of time to be fully present to God. See, Sabbath, we rest from our labors so that we might realize we are not what we do, but we have our eternal worth because of whose image we were created in. Sabbath says, God, I'm gonna put the tools of my trade down so that I might understand that even when I do not work and even when I cannot reap and sow and harvest, even when I cannot collect money or do something to maybe make a change in my life to try to control the outcome of my future, you're doing it for me. See, Sabbath was a radical concept in the ancient world. Imagine an agricultural society that depended on farming stopped working during harvest season. Once a day, every week. And every week they had to stand, at, stand and look at their unfinished work and say, God, I'm going to trust that even if that harvest doesn't come in, even if today fire comes through and burns the crop down, even if I don't get to harvest as much as I'd like, you're going to take care of me. Abraham Heschel, a phenomenal Jewish philosopher, says about this about Sabbath. Life goes wrong when the control of space, the acquisition of things, becomes our sole concern. Why? Because life is not about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, or what we're going to wear. There's more to life than that. And Sabbath forces us to put those things down and say, God, you will provide those things even if I don't know how I'm going to get them. Sabbath encourages us to turn from the results of creation and embrace the mystery of creation. Sabbath requires us to release our grip on our cares and put them into the hands of God. It takes us away from looking at what's happening today and trying to figure out what's going to happen in the future and turns our eyes on eternity, knowing no matter what happens, I have a blessed assurance that Jesus is mine. And so, Adele, if you come help me out as we prepare to close and take communion together. I realize that this message is not a silver bullet for your anxiety. I think oftentimes in the Christian life, that's what we look for. We look for like that one thing, that one practice, that one scripture, that, that one sermon that's going to solve it. But the more I've followed Jesus, the more I've realized that my faith is like a snowball effect. It starts with one little moment, one step, one step forward. And as I keep stepping forward, it snowballs into a radically transformed life. And so we're going to fail in being still. We're going to fail to pray when we're anxious. 
we're gonna forget to take Sabbath. In fact, every other day, we're probably gonna try to take back control from God and find ourselves anxious and worrisome all over again. But this is the great hope of Christianity, that even when I fail, at being fully present to the Father, even as I fail and try to take the reins back from him, there is one who didn't fail in fully entrusting himself to the Father. See, Jesus, when the second person of the Trinity became flesh, he put himself wholly in the hands of the Father. And he lived a complete life totally dependent on the Father's will and the Father's leading. And so, while I might fail and you might fail in giving up control and find your, finding ourselves anxious and worried again, we only have to cling to Jesus who's already perfectly clinging to the Father. See, the daily struggle of faith, the long defeat, something, anxiety is that thing we're going to wrestle with for the rest of our lives or we're going to fight and it's going to surface and we're going to cling to Jesus and cling to the Father and be still and pray and take Sabbath and give up control and experience that peace but because we're human we're going to try to take control again because our faith is being perfected but every time, every time we find ourselves again back with the worrisome thoughts and back with the anxious hearts, all we have to do is cling to Jesus again. And so the journey to peace begins anew until that one day when Jesus comes with the fullness of his kingdom and banishes all worry and anxiety because we would be in a new creation experiencing eternal bliss and freedom, free from all anxiety and all worry because we'll be in the eternal holy present. So with that said, I want to pray for us and then I want to lead us in communion. So I want just to pray this together and um, repeat after me as I read this aloud for us. Father, I give up control. I embrace your holy present. I cannot control the future. I can do nothing about my past. So I commit myself to you for all I have is now, this moment here. I place all my cares into your hands and like the birds, I worry not about what comes but fully embrace what is in your precious name, amen.